Well, what a great uh, joy it is for me to be back with you again. Uh, as I was driving over here this morning, I was reminded back when we were one church in two locations, how I used to drive over about once a month to be here in Wisconsin Rapids. And so it was fun to be uh, doing that again. It's great to see how uh, the, the church has grown and to see how you guys are doing and how uh, blessed you are. I wanted to um, just uh, tell you how much I appreciate the staff team that God has brought here to Crossview Church. Uh, you guys are really blessed that the, the people that God has brought to provide leadership here. And as I was driving over, thinking about uh, how we used to be one church in two locations, the cool thing now is that we are two churches with one passion, two churches with one purpose, and that's to reach our communities with the good news of Jesus Christ, to make disciples, to lift him up. So we share that one heart. We still share that. We're just Two, lo- two churches in two locations. Um, I also wanted to tell you something this morning before I begin that you already know, but I just want to tell it to you again, and that is what a great senior pastor you guys have in Pastor Dan. Um, I have a chance to hang around lots of senior pastors, and uh, Dan is a really good one for three reasons. One, because he loves scripture, and he loves to teach it, and he teaches it well. And that's really the central calling of a pastor is to usher his people, shepherd them into God's word. And uh, Dan has an incredible passion for that and loves to study and loves to learn and loves to be faithful to scripture. And that's really the center of our calling as senior pastors. Second of all, uh, Dan's a very good leader. Uh, I experienced that all the years that I had the privilege to work with him uh, very close by. And the church is not only a family in Christ, but it's also an organization, and it requires a lot of leadership. And there's a lot of leadership decisions and things that happen behind the scenes. And Dan has a very strong gift of leadership. And then third and finally, and this one used to make me kind of jealous. I'm just being real honest with you, because Dan has it better than I do. Uh, He has an incredible passion and heart for people. You know, when you sit down with Dan and talk to him, you have his full attention, you have his full heart. And he's a great shepherd. That's what that skill is that you experience in him. He loves people, he shepherds them well. And uh, so God has uniquely equipped him to be your senior pastor and you are blessed to have him. A number of years ago, uh, I listened to a talk by a very well-known pastor here in our country. And uh, he got up and he said to his congregation, he said, this morning, I want to just share with you very personally uh, 10 reasons why I want to be a faithful giver all of my life. 10 10 reasons why I give, why I tithe, why that's a part of my life. Now, I bet you're thinking right now, did Dan bring this guy over here to talk on giving this morning? You know, and no, he didn't. Uh, but I just wanted to make you sweat a little bit. Um, you know, but I tell you that because I, I, when I listened to that talk, I really appreciated it because all of his reasons resonated with me. And I remember finishing listening to that saying, you know, I, I want to do that too. I want to live a life a long, I want to be a lifelong generous giver and incorporate that into my life. Well, there are lots of things that are essential to the Christian life, like giving, like reading our Bible, like sharing our faith with other people, uh, like loving and being involved in serving in our church. Uh, and I want to talk about one of those kind of essential big things this morning that we are called to do all of our lives, and that's to pray. So I want to share with you six reasons why 
we should pray. Just as simple as that. Six reasons that motivate me, that keep me at it when I tend to drift away from prayer, that call me back to it and make me want to get on my knees again and pray again. So we're just going to dive right in. Six reasons. The first one is bound up right in the, the very verse uh, that is on your prayer card. And if there was a verse that sort of hangs over this whole message, it's that one, which is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, which says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. If you're taking notes on the back of your bulletin this morning, reason number one why we pray is this, because we are promised help if we pray. It's as simple as that. God says, if you ask me, I'm going to help you. And who among us doesn't need help of some kind and in some seasons of our lives? We all do. And the promise there in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 is so incredibly inviting and so gracious. You know, you think about that, that, that invitation, that command of Scripture. Therefore, let us, and he invites us, let us draw near. God's saying, come into my presence, draw near to me. Let us draw near with confidence. Confidence in what? Confidence that he is going to do the rest of that verse. Let us draw near with confidence to, and don't you love this picture? To the throne of grace. That God, in the place where he reigns, he reigns from a place and a position of grace. He sits, if you would, on a throne of grace. Grace means his unmerited help and his favor, and he loves to pour that out into our lives. And so the verse goes on. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? Why do we pray? So that we might receive mercy and find that grace and help, there it is, in time of need. Why do we pray? We pray because God, that's a promise from God, that he will give us those things, that he will give us help if we pray, if we just ask him. Jesus said the same thing in a little different way. He loved to tell stories and parables. And he got to this parable by giving us his teaching on praying in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 7. This is from the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in a couple of the other Gospels as well. Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus said this. He said, keep, oh, excuse me, that's Luke. He said, um, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For he who, everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. If, if you've heard a message on this passage of scripture before, you know that a better translation of verse 7, because the command in the Greek language is in the present tense, which means something that we are to do continually. So really, what Jesus said is, keep asking, and it'll be given to you. Keep seeking, and you'll find, keep knocking, and it'll be open to you. So another is that warm invitation to come to God to seek his help. That's why we pray, to, to, to remind us of how genuine a promise this is from God, and how we ought not to miss out on the opportunity in life to ask for his help, Jesus told a little story, a parable. So he went on to say this. He said, listen, what man or person among you is there who when his son asks for a loaf would give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, would give him a snake instead? And so he, you know, he sets up this story. He says, listen, if your child, parents, parents, hang with me, he's saying. If your child 
comes to you, your child who you love and says, mom, dad, I'm hungry. Would you give me, you know, a piece of bread, a Subway sandwich? Oh yeah, I got just a thing for you. He runs out in the garden, grabs a stone, and throws it on his plate. You say, what? Or your daughter comes to you and says, mom, I'm, mom, dad, I'm hungry. Would you give me just a little piece of fish? You know, I love fish. How about a filleted walleye, mom? And mom says, oh, sure, and then runs out and grabs a snake and throws it on her plate. You know, and the, the picture is abhorrent. And that was Jesus' whole point. He then goes on to apply that. He says, look, if, if you being evil wouldn't do that, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, and you are marked by sin, as we all are, he says, how much more, and he's always doing these how much more statements, how much more will your father, who's perfect and good, when his children asks him, how much more will he give to them what they need, what they ask, the help that he requires? Sometimes I think that we think that prayer is like trying to, is like taking the arm of God, putting it behind his back and trying to bend it, to, to twist it, to convince him to give us what we need. And nothing is further from the truth. Someone once said, it's not original with me, but I always love it. Someone once said that prayer is not overcoming God's resistance, but it's laying hold of his willingness. Prayer is an exercise where we're not trying to overcome the resistance of God to help us. It's to lay hold of his willingness. And he loves to help us. In fact, he looks for people who have that kind of dependent heart, who ask for his help. When uh, back at Woodlands last fall, uh, we were taking a look at prayer together, and we looked at the life of this king in the Bible by the name of King Asa. Asa has a fascinating story in scripture. Uh, He's a king who reigned for quite a few years, and uh, in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 14 to 16 is Asa's story. And early on in his kingship, King Asa faced an enormous challenge. There was an army that came out of Ethiopia with a million people strong. This army was much stronger than the army that Asa had. And so Asa felt overwhelmed. He didn't know what to do. He needed help and he went to God. And here's what he prayed. Verse 11 of 2 Chronicles 14. Asa called to the Lord his God and he said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help. There it is. To help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you. That's a simple prayer. So help us. Asa didn't have to go to seminary to learn to pray. Neither do you nor I. He just said, God, help us. There's a challenge. There's a situation that we face. So help us, O Lord our God. Because we're trusting in you and in your name we're coming out against our adversary let them not prevail against us and then the very next verse says and the lord routed the ethiopians this is what prayer is designed to do it's designed to ask god for help it's why we pray interesting thing we learned from the life of asa he would go on to live a very have a very long kingship for about 20 years everything was very prosperous in his kingdom at first after this incident He institutionalized prayer and dependence in the people of God that he led. He called on them to follow God with all their heart. But after about 20 years of peace, he faced another challenge and something changed inside of Asa. What changed inside of Asa is he went from being a dependent person who knew that he needed God's help to being an independent person of God. 
And so next time he faced an enormous challenge, here's what he did. There's no record that he ever prayed. In fact, it says clearly that he did not. To the end of his life, even when he got very sick in his old age, he never asked God for anything again, as far as we know. But here's what he did do. He went out and he made an alliance. It's, it's what kings did in those days. He made an alliance with another army. So he, he made a deal with this other army to help him to fight against the army that was attacking him. And guess what? The alliance that he built with him when they attacked this, the army that was coming against him, it worked. He defeated them. They left him alone. And you'd say success, right? Except God sent a prophet to Asa and said, and I'm going to paraphrase, he said, Asa, I intended that that army, that country that you made an alliance with, that you would ultimately defeat them. And because you have made that alliance, you will never cease having wars. And then this prophet made this great statement about God, about how he looks for people to help. Listen to this, 2 Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he might strongly support the one whose heart is completely his. And in that context, it's saying he's looking for people who are on their knees saying, God, help me. And to that person, he sends help. So why do we pray? We pray because God has promised help. Reason number two. Second reason that we pray is simply because we're commanded to pray. And really for us as Christ followers, that ought to be enough. We are the people who base our life not on feelings, we decide the direction of our life, not on the basis of what we think is right, but on the basis of God's word. We live by commands. We live by the revealed will of God. And so if there's a command in scripture to do something, that ought to be enough. And there's lots of them to pray. Uh, this past summer in Woodlands, we were, uh, I'll give you just a couple, we were walking slowly through Romans chapter 12, which has all these directives about how we are to live. And one of them, I think it's Romans 12, 12, says this. Simple one, few, ver, uh, few words in a verse says, be devoted to prayer. That's a command from your father, from my father. Be devoted to prayer. It's repeated in the book of Colossians, in chapter four, verse two, worded a little bit differently. It says, devote yourselves to prayer. And so devoted means have a lifestyle marked by praying. That ought to be enough for us. There are other commands like it. In 1 Timothy, when uh, Paul the Apostle is handing over leadership to Timothy, so Timothy can lead the churches that previously Paul led, he writes to Timothy, and in 1 Timothy, after chapter 1, is a chapter filled with personal stuff and greetings. He's, He's then about to tell them, this is what church life, this is what the people of God's life should look like. And here's where he begins. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all then, okay, what are you going to say? First of all then, in church life, what's first? First of all then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of, of kings and rulers and all who are in authority and for all people. And saying, pray, we are to be asking God for help. It's command that hangs over us. And men, can I just talk to you for a second? You guys in, in the audience this morning? That passage of scripture has something to say to us because after he calls on us to pray and talks a little bit more about that in chapter two, then in verse eight, it says this, therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands to God. That was a picture of prayer. Now you could think, well, the men there is kind of the generic mankind men, 
but you can't interpret it that way because the next verse he says, and I want the women, and he tells the women to do something in verse 9. So he's clearly talking to the male gender. He's saying, guys, men, I want you to lift up holy hands in prayer. And I say that to you guys because sometimes I think guys tend to think, well, that's sort of, you know, women are the ones who pray and praying is not very manly. We're to, you know, carve our own path and make our own way. Nothing could be further from the truth. There's nothing more masculine, more manly that you can do, guys, than to to go to bat on behalf of your family, to fight uh, for your family in prayer, to fight for your church and its health in prayer, to fight for the good of your community by praying. This is what we're called to do. Lift up holy hands, guys. Make it a priority. We're commanded to do that. You know, there's, um, there's lots of reasons probably why we stop praying. So maybe sometimes we get busy. Maybe sometimes we get discouraged or bitter because the answer doesn't seem to be forthcoming. Sometimes I think uh, we stop praying simply because we don't feel the need, right? Life's chugging along pretty well. Our marriage is fine. Our health is fine. And we still don't feel the need. Perhaps there's no pressing need. So prayer just sort of withers up. Because we don't feel like it. We don't feel the need. Well, let me make an analogy for you. If you're married this morning, you know that the command of God that hangs over your marriage, one of them, is that you be sexually faithful to your partner. What if in marriage you say, you know what? I, I just don't feel like doing that anymore. I just don't feel the need to be sexually faithful to you. Guys, if you say that to your wives someday... Your wives might come back and say, really? You know, there's a command in the Bible that I don't feel like obeying anymore either. Thou shalt not kill. (laughs) You may not want to share that with your wives. You know, that was crazy. You wouldn't say, I'm not going to obey that command about marriage because I don't feel like it. So why would we ever say, you know, I just don't feel a need to pray, so I don't think I will. It's a command. This is, if you're Christ followers, this is what we do. That's reason number two. Reason number three. Why do we pray? Because it is, I struggled with how to word this point. And here's the best I could do. Because it is the normal atmosphere and language of prayer. It's the, it's the talk that we talk. It's what should be happening continually amongst us. It should be the murmuring that goes on inside of us. It should be our lifestyle. Billy Graham years ago, back when he was in the heyday of doing his crusades, uh, was uh, invited to do an interview on CNN. And he agreed to the interview, and uh, CNN contacted Dr. Graham's office the day of the interview, and they said, uh, we we just want you to let Dr. Graham know, would you let him know uh, that we've set aside a little room uh, for him if he wants to arrive early and pray. They just thought, well, that's what evangelist types do. They must want a place where they can pray. And Billy Graham's representative had an interesting response. Uh, She said, well, thank you very much, but that won't be necessary. Don't you kind of wonder what was going through the mind of the people at CNN? Like, oh, there you go, another religious hypocrite who doesn't really do what he says he should. But then she quickly said, that room won't be necessary because let me tell you about Dr. Graham's day. She said, uh, every morning when he wakes up, he reads the Bible, first thing, and he prays. And he prays through his day and he prays for things that are on his heart. And when he's driving to the interview that you're going to have with him, he's going to be praying in the car on the way there. And when he gets to the interview and he's walking up the stairs and in the elevator, he'll be, he'll be praying. And actually when he's in the interview and you're asking him questions, probably when you ask him a question, he's probably going to be 
talking to God and praying that he answer in a way that honors God. You see, she said, you see, for Dr. Graham, prayer is not an event. It's a, it's a lifestyle. He always is praying. So he doesn't really need a room to do it. It's just who he is. And that's how it should be for us. Do you remember this really fascinating incident that happened in the life of Christ? Uh, you've probably seen pictures from Sunday school days where Jesus comes into the Jewish temple and he picks up a whip and there's anger on his face and he turns over the tables of the money changers and he casts the people out who have turned the temple into a place of commerce and business and he takes the whip and he's driving people out with it you know get out of the temple you've turned my and remember what he said you've turned my father's house into a house of business it is a house of prayer my father's house is a house of prayer do you remember when that happened in Jesus's life remember he had a he had about a three-year public ministry all of his teachings all of his miracles happened in about a three-year period somewhere we think from the age of 29 to 32 or 30 to 33 or somewhere in there is when he kind of you know came out to Jerusalem said I'm the Messiah so when in that three-year period did that happen well it's kind of a trick question because it actually happened twice it happened right at the beginning of that three-year period and it happened in the very last week before he was crucified. And so he kind of bookended his presentation of who he was and what he expected of his people with this same event. My house shall be called a house of prayer. This building that we're in, the building that we are in in Plover, is not the house of God. You are. In the New Testament, the people of God are called the house of God. You're, the, you're his temple. You're his building. And so by saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer, that now means that he's saying to us, you are to be a people of prayer. This should be the very air that you breathe. This is who we are. That's reason number three. Reason number four that we pray is because we are in a spiritual battle. Because we are in a spiritual battle. We have an enemy of our souls who fights against us. The Bible calls him the devil. He was an angel very high up in God's created order at some point in ancient history. And he fell. He rebelled against God. He led a rebellion of other angels against God. And now he hates and he works against the people of God. He has many titles in the scriptures. He is the deceiver, the adversary, the accuser, the liar, the murderer, the devil. That's who he is. That's our, this is a spiritual battle that we are in. The Bible makes that clear that we are not ever as Christians called to fight against people. We're called to love people. You know, what's, what does it say on the entrance to Crossview? Love God, love people, serve the world. We're not called to fight against people. We're called to love people. But we are called to fight. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, our fight is against the wickedness of the world and against the evil forces of wickedness against Satan and this spiritual battle that we're in. Here's how it's worded, verse 12 of Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 
there's something evil going on in your world, in your life, as there is in most of ours. You can, most of us can identify things in our world that, boy, that's just not right. Understand that there's a spiritual battle going on. Here's how it's described in First uh, Peter chapter 5, verse 8. First, it's even stronger, in some ways more frightening in that verse. First Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be on the alert. Your adversary, another title for him, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. And then here's the phrase, seeking someone to devour. That someone is you. It's me. We're Christ followers. What does it mean he wants to devour us? It means he wants to destroy your faith. It means he wants to drive you away from God. It means he wants to hurt you in some way spiritually. But then the next verse says 9, but resist him firm in the faith. If you still have your finger as I do in Ephesians 6, where we just were, in Ephesians 6 when it tells us this is our struggle against these, this spiritual battle, it then says put on the armor of God. Resist this enemy in the strength that God provides. And the most, the most words that are in the what we call the armor passage, where it says we take up the word of God, we put on hope, we put on righteousness like a belt and things like that. What gets the most attention in Ephesians 6 is prayer. The end of the, of the passage says this in verse 18. Listen to the repetition of the word all, Ephesians 6, 18. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray Paul says on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel when Paul said hey listen I want to go out and preach Jesus would you pray for me what did he know he knew that the success of the gospel enterprise hung depended on the prayers of God's people so please pray for me he said because this is a spiritual battle that we are in. Jesus made that clear to us uh, through something that happened in his life. We know the story, most of us know the story of the transfiguration where Jesus goes up on a high mountain and he appears in, in glory. He brings with him Peter, James, and John. Appears in kind of in glory. Elijah and Moses are with him. It's at that point when God the Father says, this is my son, listen to him. It's this powerful moment probably right in the middle of Jesus' three-year public ministry. It's kind of a defining moment. But we forget what happened down below on the base of the mountain for the rest of the disciples who didn't go up there. What happened down below was equally in some ways significant in terms of learning for us. Because while Jesus was up on the mountain, a guy who had a demon-afflicted, demon-oppressed, demon-possessed, whatever word you want to use, son brought him to the disciples. And he said, would you deliver my son from this evil? And they couldn't. They couldn't do it. Jesus comes down. It's recorded in Mark chapter 9. Jesus comes down and he drives the demon out of this young boy. And then his disciples get him alone after that, after their failure, and they ask him this question, and he gives them this answer. Listen, Mark 9, 28. When he came into the house, the disciples began questioning him privately, saying, why could we not drive it out? So why is it that you drove him out 
They'd already cast out demons. They'd already been sent out on a mission of casting out demons. This one they couldn't drive out. Why couldn't we drive it out? And he answered them. He said, because this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. I don't fully understand what kind of demon that was. I don't understand fully what this text means. But I'm a simple guy. I'm going to take Jesus at his word. Always a good thing to do. And so and Jesus said, there's a kind of evil in the world that can touch our lives that nothing will heal, nothing will overcome except prayer. I'm going to believe him. And that's what he's saying. He's saying there are certain kinds of evil in the world that could touch your life. And when they touch you, the first impulse should be you get on your knees and you start praying. Because we're in a spiritual battle. It's why we pray. Reason number four. Reason number five. Well, before I go to that, let me give you a quote. This is a quote from John Piper, and I love this quote about prayer, spiritual battle. John Piper, great Christian author, said this. I'll say it twice you can, if you want to write it down. Piper said, unless you believe that life is war, you will never understand what prayer is for. Let me say that again. Unless you believe that life is war, you will never understand what prayer is for. Prayer is not just a tool to ask God to make our lives nice. Prayer is to help us engage in this spiritual battle. Reason number five that we pray. Because, if you're taking notes, because we cannot accomplish his work without his help. Because we cannot accomplish his work without his help. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 15. This is the last uh, great talk that Jesus gave to his disciples called the Upper Room Discourse before he's going to be crucified and he gathers his followers together and lays down what life will be like after the resurrection and the ascension. And in John 15, the abide in me passage that all of us know so well, he said this uh, in verse 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay, now what did he mean by that last phrase? You can do nothing. Obviously, he didn't mean literally nothing. Because there are non-Christians all over the world who have no connection to Jesus. Who raise families, write beautiful music, write books, have inventions, found businesses, even help the poor. There's lots of things that are done by people with no connection to Jesus. So what did he mean when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing? What he's talking about was the work of the kingdom. He's talking about changing people's lives for eternity. And so if I, if I were to ask you the question to help you understand this, uh, the question, so when, when was the last time that you changed a human heart? The only correct answer to that question is Never. When was the last time that you caused someone to believe in Jesus Christ and begin to follow him, give their life to him, surrender their life to him? The correct answer is never, because that's the work of God. Paul put it this way in one of the epistles in the New Testament. He said, I watered, I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. He uses us in this life. He uses us to share the gospel. He uses us to teach Sunday school. He uses us to go out into our community and do outreach. But for life change to happen, that's his work. And he links abiding in him so that life change can happen to praying. 
in this text. In verse 7, here's what he says. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He links it to prayer again in verse 16. Listen, he said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he might do. John 16, 24, uh, this theme of prayer comes again in John 16, 24. He says this, until now you have asked for nothing in my name. Like there's a new day dawn, Jesus is saying. You've not learned yet to go to the Father in my name as my representative, in my authority, but now that day has come. Until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask in my name and you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Jesus gives us answers to prayer so that his work goes forward. This is one of the ways that we engage in the work of God is by praying because we cannot accomplish his work without his will. Last reason we pray. And in many ways, this is the most encouraging one for me. It's one of the ones that keeps bringing me back when I remind myself of it. Keeps stirring up prayer in me. Because he is our father. Because he's my father and your father if you've trusted Christ as savior. Because he's our father and our prayers are sacred and sweet to him. He loves to hear you pray. How do I know that? I know it from the book of Revelation. There's this vision in Revelation chapter 5 that John the Apostle had and here's how it played out in Ephesians 5. If you remember, sorry, Revelation 5. If you remember the book of Revelation, uh, in chapter 5, there's a vision that John sees of God the Father seated on a throne and Jesus the Son before him and there's a book in the hand of God and Jesus is the only one that can open the book. It's a book probably that represents the eternal destinies of people. Only Jesus can affect that. And so when, he, when Jesus takes the book and opens it, it says in verse 8, it says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures, some kind of angelic beings, and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, that's Jesus, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. What's that about? Well, it tells us which are the prayers of the saints. Really? So you're saying that our prayers arise like a sweet fragrance before God. That's the picture that's painted here. Well, if that was the only verse we had that said that, we might think, well, maybe maybe that's what it means. But it's not the only verse. In Revelation chapter 8, we have another vision. Here's what it says in verse 3 and 4 of Revelation 8. Another angel came and stood at the altar, this is in the presence of God, holding a golden censer. Much incense was given to this angel so that he might add it to the prayers of the saints, of all the saints, on the altar before the throne of God, verse 4. And the smoke of the incense and the prayers of the saints went up before God. Your father is telling you, telling me, telling us, when you kneel in your, in your private space at home, when you sit in that chair where you read your Bible and you pray, when you take a walk and you pray, when you ride a bike and you pray, when you come to church and there's sincere prayer that's going up from your heart, it's like a sweet aroma to your father because it's expressing that you depend on him, 
that you recognize that you need him, that you trust him. Prayer is ultimately about trust. Father, I can't do this on my own. I trust you. Let me close with this this morning. Pastor and author Tim Keller um, created a very helpful analogy for us that he borrowed from someone else about what prayer is really like. Because, you know, we all pray, right? And sometimes we feel like, is this doing any good? Is anything really happening? I've been praying for this for a long time. Why hasn't anything changed? I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we feel that way. This analogy has helped me. Maybe it'll help you. He got it, Tim Keller got it from a Norwegian pastor. And the Norwegian pastor said, you know, in the country where I live in Norway, I've observed the mining operation of our country, how they make mines. And he said the way they create mine shafts in our country is there's a lot of work that goes into creating a mine shaft. And it's slow and it's tedious. And what takes the most time is they're drilling down often through solid rock. Sometimes straight down, sometimes sideways into hillsides. They're drilling down and they're looking for, as best they can understand the rock structure of that place, they're looking for strategic places and they, they break drill bits, they run into problems, they have to back out, start over, but they're drilling, drilling, drilling. That takes a long time, drilling down, drilling in. And when the, the holes, they have the right number of holes bored, then they pour in the explosive and they light the fuse. And he said, it's really exciting when they light the fuse. That's really cool to see. But the work of drilling the holes is very tedious and slow and patient. And he said, and Tim Keller said, and that's what most of your prayers are going to feel like. You're boring holes into spiritual resistance in people's hearts and in your heart. You're boring holes into situations that need to be changed and only God can change. Tim Keller uh, applied it this way uh, with his words. And I'll let, let his words speak. Tim Keller writes, This helpful illustration warns us again against only doing fuse lighting kinds of prayers. The kind that we soon drop if we don't get immediate results. If we believe both in the power of prayer and in the wisdom of God, we will have a patient life of whole boring prayer. He writes, Mature believers know that handling the tedium of prayer is what makes for effective prayers. We must avoid extremes in our prayer life of either not asking God at all for things or of thinking that somehow we can bend God's will to ours. We must rather combine a kind of tenacious perseverance in our praying, a kind of striving with God at the same time with a deep acceptance of a wise father's choice of how he will answer that prayer. Brothers and sisters in Crossview, God has called you to bore some holes for the good of your family, for the health of this church, for the advance of the cause of Christ in this community, this state, and around our world. This is who we are as the people of God. We pray. Let's keep at it. Let's stand and pray together this morning. Jesus, until you return, you tell us to go and bear fruit, and we can't do that unless we're asking you for help. So I pray that uh, you would build in each one of us in this room who know you a faithful prayer life, a consistent, persevering dependence on you to do what only you can do for your glory and for our good. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.